One of the most common things you hear in Washington these days is that Congress is broken and Congress needs to take some of its power back. It's ceded too much to the executive branch, it's ceded too much to K Street, it just can't get its mojo going. And there are many reasons for Congress's ineptitude and incapacity, but it seems like one reason that we've come to understand more and more is the extent to which Congress is staffed and run by pretty inexperienced people. And since knowledge is power, a lack of knowledge is also a lack of power. So today we're going to do a deep dive into the role of knowledge and expertise and experience in Congress. And, you know, in particular, we're going to explore the explanations for and the implications of declining congressional staff capacity and also examine some prospects for reform. So welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast about how American political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor at Marquette University. I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. And today I'm really delighted to have a very special guest, Alexander Furness, who's a postdoctoral scholar in the Management and Organizations Department at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University Center of Science and Innovation. And this is a really exciting uh, moment for me personally, because I have known Dr. Furness since before he was a doctor, well before. In fact, uh, he and I worked together many years ago at the Sunlight Foundation, and I actually had the great joy to hire him as an intern once upon a time. And I'm so proud of how his career has just blossomed. He just finished his PhD at Michigan. So it's, it's just a, a real treat to have you joining us today. And uh, the, the opportunity, the occasion for, uh, for you joining us is a new paper that you've co-authored with uh, Tim Lapierre that New America is publishing called The uh, Congressional Brain Drain, Legislative Capacity in the 21st Century. So welcome, Xander, or should I say Dr. Furness. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. Uh, Xander's just fine. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for that really kind introduction. And I'm really excited to talk to you about some of the stuff I've been working on. Cool. So I'll get the conversation started with a question. And, you know, we want to talk about congressional staff. And it seems like there's actually been a, a growing number of scholars and scholarship on uh, in political science, a little bit of, bo- of a boomlet in studying congressional staff instead of just members of Congress. So maybe you can give us a quick overview of why we should be paying attention to congressional staff and why more scholars are studying staff. And also a little tell us a little bit about this congressional capacity survey that uh, this paper is is based on and some of your other work as well. Sure. So yeah, I, I agree that there has been this sort of boomlet in, in recent years. Scholars of Congress focused on congressional staff in the 70s and 80s more. Um, and then it sort of went out of vogue in the discipline as rational choice models and strategic action of individual members really came to the fore and analysis of roll call votes and things of that nature. But uh, I think as we've sort of mined that well pretty extensively, people have decided that it's really important to, and and actually you helped convene a a bunch of scholars a few years ago at, I think maybe in 2016 at our professional conference to get together and talk about this and ultimately put together a mini conference. And so I think actually you're, you're sort of too modest to mention it here, but we're part of this resurgence of people studying congressional staff. 
and we found a lot of sort of fruitful work to be done in unpacking members' offices. And I think there's sort of a variety of reasons why staffers are important. And the first is that members of Congress basically organize their offices like small businesses, right? They have a budget that they can spend and they have their own incentives and goals and stuff, but they can decide how they want to set up their office, who they want to hire, how many folks to hire and which different kinds of roles. And so offices are all really different in how they choose to do this. And because of that, we can sort of learn things about the choices that that members make over the way they want to organize their offices and the kind of staffers they hire. There are incredible demands on members of Congress's time between activity like committee, working committees, floor time, like floor speeches and but, uh, you know, caucus time, but especially call time, right? Members spend a lot of time dialing for dollars, essentially. And then between that and traveling to and from the district, their, their schedules are pretty packed. And so they delegate a lot of work to staff. Staff play a central role in information gathering, in meeting with interest groups, lobbyists, and constituents who are sort of petitioning them about problems that they want to be addressed or redress for certain issues or perspectives on different policy issues of the day. And then they, they brief their members, they prep their members for committee hearings, they write floor speeches, draft legislation, but all of this stuff is staffers are doing it. Um, and this can give staffers a lot of influence over what members of Congress actually end up doing, right? I think we should think of legislative behavior in Congress as a function of staffer activity more than just individual members' choices. Although we need to study that more, right, that connection. Um, but there is evidence that, that more senior staff in um, legislators' offices, those who have been around a lot longer and have a lot more experience, lead to, to members being more effective legislators and that staffers can shape, they change members' voting patterns. We see this when they move from one office to another. And so I think this actually has particularly interesting representational uh, implications, right, is that if staffers are really so important in all of these different aspects of how Congress functions, but it's the member that's elected and the member that's sort of beholden to constituents, at least that's sort of the normative idea that we have about how representation works, but staffers don't necessarily face those same incentives over who they listen to or who they rely on, um, what does that mean for representation? I think that's a pretty important question. Julia? Yeah, so I wanted to ask a little bit about the the temporal nature of this and how this has evolved over time. So it's popular, I think, to date this back to the Newt Gingrich era and blame Newt Gingrich for this and, and virtually everything else that people think is dysfunctional about Congress. Um, but your recent work suggests a little bit more complicated and nuanced story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, happy to. So first to start out the sort of Highest level trends here show declining number of staffers in the institution overall since you know the late 70s and early 80s. This is in both chambers. It's in particularly in legislative support organizations and in places like the CRS, CBO. We've even seen these sort of declining numbers in committee staffs. The only real exception here is leadership staff it has not declined in the same way. And so that's something that we want to circle back to. But I do think we can give you're right that I, I do present and with in work with co-authors a more nuanced view than just this is Newt Gingrich's fault. But I do think we can give Newt some credit, either for correctly anticipating where things were headed and getting ahead of the game or perhaps accelerating it. Because there does appear to be, um, this is from co-authored work that I did with Jesse Crossan, Tim LaPira, and Casey Burgett, 
we do sort of see an inflection point around the contract with America. That's when this decline seems to start happening. This is a decline in, in legislative um, staffing in, in sort of the amount of resources in, in individual members' offices devoted to legislative staffing. But if this were something that was just Newt Gingrich's fault um, and it was sort of a partisan, this kind of story is like Republicans at this time were particularly interested in small government and in uh, slashing budgets and in, in legislating less. And so they sort of had an ideological motivation to shrink the capacity of the institution. If that were true, we should expect differences between what Democrats and Republicans do or did rather in hiring different kinds of staffers. And here I think it's important to think about this point that I mentioned before, which is that members of Congress run their offices as their own enterprises, right? They have a budget and they can allocate it however they like. And when we look at how they allocate this budget in the House, this is called the the members' representational allowance. And um, that's where our research focused was on the House of Representatives. Looking at how they allocate that gives us an insight into the priorities of a particular member of Congress, right? They can spend a lot more of their budget on constituent case, on staffers who work on constituent casework, or a lot more on communications staffers, or a lot more on policy staffers. And so in this paper, we look at these allocations to different staffing functions over time, and we find decreases in the share of these budgets devoted to staffers with legislative responsibilities. Um, consistently since the contract with America, but it was a bipartisan trend. Both Democrats and Republicans did it, so it wasn't just Newt Gingrich. And more importantly, right, we could tell the story about how there's no incentive for, for Democrats to invest in legislative staff when the Republicans were in power, because those maybe those legislative staffers would be sitting around not accomplishing much. So maybe it was important at that time. But then when they come back into power, Democrats should reinvest in legislative staffers if we think that this is sort of an ideological story, but they don't, right? When the Democrats gain control over the House of Representatives, they keep these low levels of staffing, uh, of of legislative staff in personal offices. Um, And this effect is true for both individual members. So over time, members in the institution divest as, as time passes. And it's also true for new members. Freshman members coming into the institution devote fewer and fewer of their resources to legislative staffers the later they come into the institution, right? So it's sort of a secular decline within the institution in the amount that members are, of their resources that members are devoting to legislative staff. Um, And they do this, you know, not just individually, but sort of the turnover in the institution accelerates that as well. So Xander, this uh, James here. I I think this is a, a really good uh, paper. I recommend it to our listeners. And as a longtime congressional staffer, as someone who wept like a baby my last day in the Senate, and again, I probably shouldn't say that out loud. I do sympathize with the challenges that that many of the the staffers face on Capitol Hill today. And I commend you for highlighting those challenges. And I, I, I do think that Congress needs more capacity. But I, I want to take a step back here and, and think about this problem more broadly in a sense that if we can't illuminate the real underlying uh, problem, at least as I see it, and that gets on this question of, of expertise. And I think you know when we focus on staff, and I'm not necessarily saying you're doing this, uh, Xander, but I think that there is a, 
an implicit kind of assumption that that expertise is necessary. It's kind of a technocratic assumption that it's the expectation that political questions, right, should be decided by our experts, by people that are expert in different policy areas. And we begin to transform Congress into a mini administration, into a mini executive branch. And I'm not sure, and again, I'm not saying you're necessarily doing this, but by focusing on staff exclusively in this sense, are we uh, privileging outputs over uh, the the real nature of the of the Congress, which is uh, a venue for an activity in which uh, members participate? I think that's a really interesting question, and I'm excited to talk with you about it because I think we're going to disagree, and that's going to be elucidating, right? I, I think I think this is an important tension here. So I. I and I think you're right to say, like, I'm willing to, you know, you were careful to say that I'm not doing, I mean, you're not accusing me of doing this, but I think I am um, endorsing a little bit more of a technocratic view of Congress than you might. Of course, I, you know, Congress is a body for social choice, right? Engaging in, in collective decision-making and that involves bargaining and trade-offs and, and right. It's, it can't be purely, there are questions of norms or sort of normative questions of what we see as desirable policy goals as a society that, that they want to implement, right? So that's an important function of the institution. But I think expertise is really necessary here. I think non-expert staff empower lobbyists to a greater degree because lobbyists benefit from advantageous information asymmetries. I think staffers need to know enough about the issues in which they are engaging to be able to validate the information that they get from lobbyists who have an incentive to, to dissemble, to sort of shade information or, or po- their policy recommendations in the direction of their clients, for sure. I also think that committee staffers, who tend to be more expert in a variety of ways, and they tend to have been in, in the institution longer, and they're sort of less biased in how they, at least less ideologically biased in how they evaluate sources of information. For example, this is a thing that I looked at in my dissertation. But to your second point, I'm not sure. I, I I'm not so sure that what we should be focusing on is kind of openness to deliberation, um, or argument because I don't. I'm not sure that's what I think the core function of Congress is, um, despite its moniker as the sort of greatest deliberative body in the world or the Senate at least. I think a primary function of Congress is processing diffused information, right? Understanding the state of the world and then what problems are part of that state of the world that need to be addressed, what to prioritize, what possible policy alternatives there are, and how to sort of evaluate those different policy alternatives. Those are all questions of sort of a centralized body engaging in sense-making and search over diffuse information. And I think it helps to know more about the substance of those issues and who the interlocutors are and what their perspectives and agendas are as you engage in that kind of search process. No, and I think that's fair, but I do think that it's the respectfully the the argument and the deliberation that helps to educate both the members and the staff, and it helps to uh, lay bare the various uh, information channels and the validity of those channels from lobbyists and other places. So, if you're getting you know information from a lobbyist that is is one sided or, or slanted, then the only way to kind of really assess that is to be confronted with the process that tests that information that plays out and that isn't just a one-off type thing. And, but, you know, real quick, and I'm sorry to jump in everyone, but to what extent, I mean, 
committee staff, it seems to me, also represent a certain viewpoint. And maybe it's their committee chairman or ranking member. Uh, you know, if we think about Jim Thurber's work on, on policy subsystems, on iron triangles, if we think about committee staffs are just as able to get captured, if you will, as are all staff um, by certain different points of view. And I think especially so for outlier members, uh, you know, you're, think of your conservatives or your progressives in an era who are, who are pushing to change the status quo. I mean, you know, you probably don't have too many uh, advocates of, and this probably is a bit unfair, but you don't, probably don't have too many advocates of, you know, civil rights reform on, on, on James Eastland's committee staff in the, in the Senate in the 50s and 60s. But similarly, you don't have too many advocates for, for really cutting defense spending on the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee these days. And and that may be good. I'm not saying we should do that. But I think it's hard. It, it's not that the, the committee staff themselves are these unbiased repositories of information that just help members do what they want. I mean, many times committee staff would flat out refuse uh, or pretend or, or otherwise shade things in certain ways. So to make staffers who wanted to do things they didn't agree with seem impossible or otherwise too hard. Yeah, those are great points. Um, I, I'm not convinced, though, that what we see, and, and maybe your point is that this is something that we need, not something that happens, but something that we should be trying to figure out how to, to create or or to promote. But I, I don't look at Congress now and see a lot of deliberation happening, right? Like, by and large, information tends to be used to support pre-existing conclusions that are held by members or coalitions or interests. Sure. And, and I think that's, I think that's not just a function of institutional incentives. I think that's a function of human decision-making, right? I think that's a function of, of the political psychology of, or of the psychology of, of evaluating political information. Um, What I think the sort of my belief in some level of technocracy here is that staffers that I've interviewed of both parties, but particularly in committee staff or in committee offices, show much higher levels of trust and willingness to use and rely on what I would think of as a sort of high quality, either sort of peer-reviewed academic work or nonpartisan work by the CRS or CBO. I think their sort of incentives for accuracy are higher than personal office staff that are maybe more interested in messaging or position taking activity and, and want some sort of informational ammunition for, for making a particular argument. But I don't think it's that, I, yeah, so I, I mean, I guess that's how I think about committee staff here. Certainly they have the possibility to be captured as well, but I think they're in, they're accuracy incentives because what they create may actually become policy and they don't want to enact policy that's going to have unintended consequences that are going to be damaging matters there. Um, But I I think I only partially addressed your question and I want to address more of it. So what else you got? Well, I would let uh, let, uh, Julia jump in uh, here as well. And well, I think this will kind of come out hopefully over the course of our conversation. But, you know, I think it is, and again, I'm not taking issue with any particular things about the report. In fact, I think it's a fabulous report and I highly recommend it uh, to our to our readers because I think it does illustrate the nature of the problem 
very, very well. So I want to jump in, and I think my my question is kind of in a similar vein in terms of the role of expertise. And I want to kind of pick up on what you said earlier, Xander, about your kind of technocratic view of politics and bring in the voters and the the electorate. So I'm later today, in fact, I'm teaching Congress in my graduate seminar, and I'm using this review article by Sarah Bender from 2014. That's just, it's obviously now um, a little bit talking about some things are a little bit out of date, but still fabulous kind of summary of the dysfunctionality of the contemporary Congress. And she essentially makes the case that there really isn't a lot of electoral incentive for members of Congress to legislate, to to come to agreement on the major issues of the day. And if I remember right, this is also, Frances Lee also does connect this a little bit, these incentives to staffing in her work, right? That she connects the kind of electoral incentive to try and win a majority and the, the competition for control of Congress to this decline in legislative staff as opposed to representational staff. And if I'm, I, I might be getting the details of that wrong, so I'm hoping one of you Congress folks will, will clarify, but that's my recollection. And so I wonder to what extent having better staffing on the on the policy side on the expertise side is not at all going to address that i guess um is not at all going to address the the fundamental problem of electoral incentives and so is the argument then that this would by being more technocratic takes these issues maybe a little bit further away from from the electoral realm and moves into kind of a policy realm that's beyond the view of most people in the electorate is that is that a fair assessment how do we how do we balance technocracy with with democratic input and accountability especially when those forces have actually proven to be somewhat counterproductive in the congressional context yeah i think that's a great point and i don't want us to overstate that and you know i'm guilty of this in my previous phrasing i'm not fully endorsing a, a kind of technocratic perspective on on how policy is made or in politics i think mostly it's about what kind of power different coalitions have and and then those coalitions bargaining, right? But to your point, I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, particularly about the, the electoral incentives here. And that's actually part of what we talk about as sort of the theoretical story of the paper on staff decline is we sort of build a lot on, on Frances Lee's work and basically take her argument that the insecure majorities, the extent to which the majorities in Congress are up for grabs in every election, coupled with sort of the increased partisanship of like, if the other side is, you know, gets the majority, they're going to do these big things that we don't like, makes uh, in every cycle it particularly critical to maintain or win a majority. And that means we want to invest all that we can, all of our resources in things that are electorally beneficial. Right. And in, in this period, what that looks like is more constituent service and more communications and less legislative staff. Right. And so I, I definitely think it's those kind of incentives that are driving this divestment in terms of whether goosing investment in in legislative capacity can help some of these trends. I'm not sure that that it can in that those incentives don't go away. Right. And members are going to like, I think if you just give members larger uh, MRAs, give them give them a higher budget to spend on staff, they're going to mostly continue to allocate that budget as we've seen them do it now. Right. They're going to they're going to prioritize things that they think are electorally beneficial. And that's 
just the nature of sort of responding to these kind of incentives. What gives me some hope for bringing a little bit of expertise back in or if I, is that in my work, I see really strong effects of staffers ideology, individual staffers ideology on how they evaluate different sources of information, uh, particularly looking at outside sources of information. Um, and we know that, that Congress relies a lot on things from think tanks and industry associations and lobbyists and right, all this information that I'm, I keep talking about it, about what's going on in the world is out there in the world and has to be kind of sifted and, and centralized and sorted. And if staffers ideologies are playing a really big, a big role in how they end up seeing the world, I think that makes the incentives to, or maybe not the incentives, the ability to legislate together even more difficult, right? If you're coming from a different set of facts or a different understanding of what the state of the world is and what the problems are, it's really hard to legislate. And where I get some hope is that the one exception are the most expert staff by a couple measures that I try to use, you know, I had asked staffers some sort of process knowledge questions to get a sense of how well they understood the institution and also policy knowledge questions and looking at their tenure and their seniority and, and where they are in the institution, right? And I'm sort of most expert and, and particularly committee staff are the ones who trust these sort of nonpartisan sources like the Congressional Research Service the most. And both Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, they all do. And I had in interviews, some of these staffers say things to me like, oh, well, if there's a CRS, like I'd ask them, how do you get a sense of, you know, you're working on a new issue? How do you get up to speed and figure out what, what the important things you need to know are? And they said, well, if there's a CRS report on the issue, that's where I look first. If there is one, then it's a solved problem for me. Like that's the, that's the state of the world. And I can show it to my colleague on the other side and they agree too. And now we have a common baseline that we're working from. And so, you know, I, I think institutional investment in those kind of shared resources that can build shared understanding. And then we can have, to, to James's point, right, and then maybe the institution can effectively deliberate or effectively engage in, in whatever kind of collective choice it, it's going to over normative questions of what we want to achieve with policy we need the, the sort of shared factual basis to engage in that, I think. And that's where I see expertise as important. Cool. So I want to focus a little bit on this uh, congressional brain drain paper here and pick up on what I think are, are really two big takeaways. First bullet point here is the uh, idea that Congress is a funnel to lucrative jobs and lobbying, which has sort of been conventional wisdom, I think, to, to some extent. But, but one of the things about this paper is that you really quantify that through surveys. And uh, you show that about 40, 45 percent of folks in Congress see the private sector as their next career step. Uh, the second key point is uh, the extent to which staff resources have shifted outside of Washington to the district. And I want to kind of ask you a little bit more about the, the second one, because I think there's a, a little bit of a tension here that I think a lot of a lot of folks that I talk to in the sort of congressional capacity space seem to kind of bemoan this as a trend. But, you know, I also wonder, you know, maybe it, it is actually important for a lot of resources to be in the district. And I think there's two reasons for that. One 
is because sometimes if you're just in Washington and just hearing from from experts in and around Washington, you kind of get a distorted view of things. And you know, just talking, hearing from a lot of people in the district, you might pick up on the kinds of problems and concerns that people, I hate to use the phrase ordinary people because nobody is ordinary, but you know, people in in the district living their lives not engaged in politics and policy are kind of dealing with. And second is that you know, I think part of the role of members of Congress is essentially to be ombus people from government to again, I hate the phrase ordinary people because no one is ordinary. Uh, but you know, people living the, living their lives. And to the extent that that more people who are not in Washington and not around Washington can feel somehow connected to the government in Washington, that could enhance a sense that government is not this big abstract behemoth that is interfering with their lives and you know pushing them around, but that they have somebody who can actually explain what is happening in Washington and, and somebody who actually cares about them. So just, you know, if you could kind of just give us some some highlights of those two trends and, and you know, riff on why you see those as important trends. Yeah, right. So I think the, the, to the first question or, or first major trend here, which is the extent to which staffers largely leave to the private sector and often to become lobbyists, I think this is important because the sort of ultimate result is that folks working in staff are young and inexperienced overall, right? There are certainly exceptions and there are some, I mean, I think staffers in general are, are really dedicated and, and, and working incredibly hard at really important stuff, but they're under-resourced, they're underpaid, and they're overworked. And they know, and, and Washington, D.C. Is, is an incredibly expensive city to live in, and they know that there is this the sort of Congress is part of a, a larger labor market and the labor market for the skills and that they have and the connections that they have and and their experience um, is a, a one where they can make a lot of money elsewhere and and there's not they don't see staff uh, they don't see being uh, staffers in Congress as a long term career path. Right, it's something that they're only going to do for a little while. Uh, something like forty-three percent from our survey. I, I want to get the exact number right when I when I quote it to you, but something like forty-three percent. Yeah, exactly forty-three percent plan to depart Congress by the end of the session in which they're employed. Right, so that's that's an incredible amount of turnover for an institution to have to deal with on a regular basis, um, and all that institutional knowledge doesn't evaporate, right? It goes specifically much of it to the folks who want to influence policy outcomes for private benefit rather than working for, in at least in, in some of the sort of public service minded way that I think motivates many congressional staffers and staffers that I've talked to, they know that that public, that public service is not as, as remunerative as being a lobbyist and they're okay with that. I think folks place a value, a place intrinsic value on public service such that they're willing to to work for less, but not one third of of what they would make outside, right? Like it may be Congress is never going to compete dollar for dollar with lobbyists, but people want to work in Congress. But I think that it needs to be more competitive than it is to retain the kind of talent that we want making laws in one of the most professionalized legislatures in the world. 
I think we want to we want to retain people who are good at working there. Do you have more questions about about that particular trend before I get to the the shift to the district? Uh, no, go 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 back to the districts. Sure. Yeah, I certainly think that you know no no staffer and and certainly no member of Congress is ever going to tell you that constituent service isn't important or connections to the district aren't important. Of course they are. One of the fundamental duties of Congress is representational, right? But it's not just to be ombudsman, they're to represent their constituents in by making policy. We need Congress to make policy, to make laws, to amend laws when things aren't working, to pass budgets, to fund the government. And, and they're supposed to represent their constituents in those activities specifically. And I, you know, I've also never heard a staffer say that they're not getting enough information from constituents, right? What you tend to hear are metaphors like they're drinking from the fire hose, right? That they're, they're flooded with constituent, you know, as information and communication technologies have made it much easier to, to contact members of Congress and their staffers in recent decades. They're sort of flooded with information from constituents and other interests, and so what I would be concerned about here is not that they're not hearing from constituents, but that the, the sample they get from constituents of information is, is a non-representative one, right? And I think that's undoubtedly true, right? Of course, we see everything ranging from, you know, interest groups mobilize very frequently, right? Introduce mobilize emailing campaigns, letter writing campaigns, and, and things of that nature, and sort of not so organic expressions of constituent interest or sort of AstroTurf campaigns, things of that nature. But I'm not particularly convinced that the remedy is just be in the district more, and that will because I think you still get the same. You, you get these kinds of right? Like staffers are going to draw on availability heuristics as they try to understand who, who they have in mind when they think of a constituent and what are their concerns. And that's going to be shaped by who's the most visible, who's the loudest, who's the, um, you know, often correlated with, with various forms of status or privilege or resource uh, availability to, to kind of be engaged in that kind of politics when members or their staffers are back in the district so if, if our real concern here is offices are out of touch with the needs of their constituents, you know, I'd like to think more systematically about what it would look like to gather representative information about constituents' problems. And I don't think people are doing that. In terms of why I think the share uh, that's in the office that's or in D.C. that's fallen is important, again, I think you, you really need, you can't legislate without staff. and We've certainly seen Congress that legislates when it when it does manage to legislate mostly by sort of direction of leadership, um, and I think that centralization has come in part because members don't have, and it's really hard to talk about causality here, right? Is one just responding to the other? But if you have if members have policy shops in their offices that are putting out thoughtful and and meaningful policy proposals. Those are things that leadership can draw on. They can build constituencies for those types of proposals. And, I, you know, I think we've seen things like the Green New Deal do this. Now, obviously, nothing in that has become law, but it has shaped conversations around climate action in the Democratic coalition. And that's come out of a handful of members having staffers that cared about this policy and, and worked on it. 
I want to ask a brief follow-up before we we start to wrap up. And this is just about kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the staffer situation. When I was looking at the kinds of salaries that these staff positions offer and thinking about what it costs to live in D.C. And I was kind of curious if there's any, we really know, if there's any systematic data about who these people are. These just folks that are deeply ideologically committed. They have very high tolerance for living with nine roommates. Or, you know, my, my other suspicion is is that this is a career path that's really only open to people who kind of have an additional source of income or have, I mean, mainly who probably have family money. Do we know anything about that? Yeah, that's a really important point, particularly when we think about how important representation inside these institutions can be in terms of what questions end up getting addressed and what perspectives are heard and what policy is made, whose views are taken seriously. You know, I, I don't have any data to speak to things like who has, what share have family money or something of that nature. But what I can tell you is that staffers are overwhelmingly pretty young, right? And so 60% of staff are under 35, 75% are under 40. The average tenure on the Hill is about three years. So maybe it's that people have a tolerance for, for that, uh, for living on these relatively low salaries and working 50, 60 hour weeks, but not for very long. Um, and even folks who want to continue in the public sector when they're thinking about their long-term career options, over half plan on leaving Congress but, and working in the public sector elsewhere. About half of staffers started their careers um, as interns of one kind or another. And until recently, those were almost exclusively unpaid internships. Now some of them are paid and um, that's a great step in the right direction. Not enough of them are paid and uh, not enough of them are paid enough in my opinion. But, you know, that's such a critical pipeline for people entering the institution and for making it available to people without uh, money or systematic privilege that can help them kind of work under w- for those low wages in such an expensive city. Um, I think, you know, that's something that really needs to continue to be a focus of reform efforts. James, do you want to ask a question and, and, and also ask about what reform Xander recommends? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the reforms are that we should follow or prescribed to to address the underlying issue should be tailored to the problem. And I think this gets back to, um, it's not that I'm disagreeing that this is a problem, but I think asking, what do we want staff to do? Like, what is it exactly? Like, because it seems to me that the things that I experienced on Capitol Hill, the things that made, uh, I believe, me an effective staffer and uh, made my colleagues effective staffers, were adverbial in nature because the members, their job and Congress's job is adverbial in nature and staff learn by doing. And as Congress does less, it legislates less. It makes certain, it makes a certain amount of sense if you think about it, that the staff capacity on things like uh, legislative staff is going to decline and the things that they're doing more of like communications and for instance, uh, you know, district work may, may rise. And And I'm wondering, is this a case for more deliberation after all? Or how would your policy recommendations, and if you would share those with us, how would your policy recommendations help staff do what it is that you think they ought to be doing? 
I agree with everything you just said, except that it necessarily that that it's that the conclusion is that it's a case for more deliberation after all. Although I I certainly am not against more deliberation, but I staff certainly learn by doing, and members learn by doing, and in, and it is not a surprise that as Congress has done less, that there's less capacity to to legislate, right? We had a, a striking quote from someone that we interviewed who was you know, a relatively senior staffer who'd been around for a long time. And I don't, I can't divulge more than that for anonymity reasons, but basically said, nobody here remembers how to legislate anymore. And so, you know, because staff learn by doing, I think this is really an argument to try to keep staffers in the institution, right? Like tenure in the institution matters, experience matters. And so the biggest recommendation and, and the sort of, this is the we have a lot of uh, sort of more specific recommendations in this white paper on the brain drain, congressional brain drain white paper, but many of them focus on how to retain staff for a longer time. And so is this a case for more deliberation? Maybe. I think it's a case for, for more legislating and for more policy work. And if that involves deliberation as part of the process, and I think it does, then it's a case for that too. Again, and, and it's, it's not super instructive, but I'm going to keep saying it, causality is really hard here, right? And so there's sort of a feedback loop type mechanism that we can think about where Congress does less, and so then they have less institutional capacity and memory and ability to do things, so then they do even less, right? And they build on each other. And so trying to really provide the resources necessary to allow them to do more, I think is an important step here. And that is that if maybe it takes longer now to get the same amount of legislative experience that you could have gotten in a couple of years, a decade or two ago, and now because meaningful legislation happens more rarely, you got to keep the people around who remember trying to pass Obamacare or something, right? Because that was a major piece, one of the most recent really major pieces of legislation. I mean, there's a lot of other legislation, but not that kind of real coalition, multi-year-long coalition building, large policy change stuff. So in terms of other kinds of recommendations we have, right, the the institutions currently have uh, limitations on overall kind of full-time equivalents, the number of staffers that a member can in the House can hire or limitations on how staff sharing can function, right? This is when multiple members all pay a portion of a staffer's salary. Providing more flexibility there will, I think, allow more creative arrangements to compensate staffers appropriately. I think creating, uh, I mean, just paying staff more to me is like the biggest and most important recommendation you know, I think reforming the member's representational allowance would be helpful. So this involves things like centralizing um, some basic information technology and routine office function provisioning so that members aren't spending a bunch of their budget on that kind of things. I think, as I mentioned before, paying interns is really critical. I think there are better gains to be made in centralizing some functions of the lever, the legislative staff uh, labor market. You know, mostly they function through uh, informal networks of, of recruitment and, and retention. 
um, and that's particularly problematic for traditionally underrepresented groups within the institution. Let's let's those are all great suggestions, and you know, really encourage people to read the the white paper, the Congressional Brain Drain, available through New America. Um, but you know, quickly want to want to wrap, and you know, just want to do some quick takeaways here. I think you know, for me. You know, I, I've been thinking, obviously, for a long time that staff are, are really important, which, you know, came out of my research on on lobbying and also working as a congressional staffer. But one of the things that I've you know struggled with over the years is precisely Julia's question, which is if the electoral incentives and the structure of Congress are incredibly polarizing and don't create incentives and pressures to actually work together and solve problems and 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 let committees work as as they used to then all this expertise you know is in some ways beside the point and you know this is something that I constantly struggle with but it's one of the reasons that I've shifted my own focus more towards electoral reform realizing that congressional capacity is extremely important but thinking that the only way to get Congress to invest in that capacity and expertise is to change the underlying structure of of our elections. Uh, Although I obviously support all these reforms. Uh, Julia and then James and then Xander have the last word. Yeah, I mean, I'll just be brief because I think, Lee, a lot of what you said is, is sort of what I've been thinking about. So I think the takeaway for me has been really thinking about capacity as a kind of central um, topic and problem in in the study of Congress and that gets at some really core tensions in terms of representation and expertise. And I think I'll probably be, I've, I've added the uh, the recent paper that Xander's done with uh, Lapira and Burgett and, and Crossan to um, to a reading list for my grad students. I anticipate adding it to some syllabi and kind of using it in that in that capacity. So thank you for that work. Thank you for this for this uh, paper. Again, it's a, a great paper. I recommend it. And it really, I think, affirmed a lot of what I experienced uh, working on Capitol Hill. I do think staff are vital. I think they're very, very important. And, you know, I think the tension between expertise and democratic politics, between expertise and self-government is a very real one. It's one that we don't give enough attention to wherever, however we may fall uh, on that question. And I, you know, I commend you for, for engaging in that um, conversation with us. And, and it, it's very helpful to clarify my thinking. And I will keep clarifying my thinking. But, you know, I, I still keep coming back to this fundamental point, which is that the staff, while yes, I think are they indicate to us, I think, a very real problem. And that problem, I think, is they suffer from the same things that the members suffer from and and the entire system. It's, you know, I'm not sure that the staff and the capacity itself is the cause, because after all, Congress doesn't really use the capacity it has now. It's more of a shift in how we understand and think about politics and understanding that shift and and grappling with it and solving it, uh, or at least uh, responding to it and overcoming the challenges it presents, I think gets at this tension that Julia just mentioned between representation and expertise, self-government and expertise. And that is just something that we're just at the tip of the iceberg on now. I think these are really interesting concluding thoughts and important context for, for this kind of thinking. I think that the um, to Lee's point about, you know, is this is this polarization and hyperpartisanship in our electoral institutions that are causing this and, and sort of things like congressional capacity are a second order result of that. You know, I think the um, electoral context and the institutional framework in Congress are 
are particularly ill-matched here, right? And this is something you've talked about before, Lee, but so one version of this is trying to ameliorate hyper-partisanship through different electoral institutions, but another version is governance that doesn't have as many veto points as we have here, right? If Congress was able to legislate because there weren't you know, you didn't have, like, if it was functionally, the legislature was just more majoritarian, so that when parties were in power, they could legislate, then they have incentives to invest in staffers that could make sure the legislation they actually passed was good, right? And and I think part of, of trying to square the circle of the tension between sort of more technocratic or expertise-driven governments and representation is when when governments are actually able to implement policies and then we can see the effects of those policies and then members can be held accountable in elections for the results of the policies they enact, right? That's, that's democracy. That's, um, that's effective. That's that sort of responsive representation. Um, if they actually are going to be held accountable for policies they enact, but in our current situation where we're not doing much legislating, um, and instead just lots of position taking and, blaming of each other, then there's what the voters will react to and sort of how they're supposed to hold members accountable isn't connected at all to what their policy staffers maybe are or aren't doing because they're not actually making policy. Well, thank you, Xander, Dr. Furness, for for joining us for this fascinating conversation. It's been a real pleasure. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.